episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Hain, and with me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Eric. Wow. Hello, Eric. You, you I, brought it back. I, sure. How it was originally supposed to be. Well, um, yeah, fair. <laughs> um, so, I don't know. We've actually, I think, have one of our better lineups of things to talk about today. It's a very short lineup, but I think we're really going to kind of get into some interesting things in terms of the future of um, publishing trends, especially as it relates to fiction. Um, and how people respond to that. Um, but before we get into all of those kind of big, high-minded things, how about we get the basic rundown? Huh? Sure. So first things first, if you hear a little jangle jangle in the background, <laughs> it is because the sweet podcast dog, Moose, is visiting dog. us today. The, the dog is now the podcast dog. Well, you don't have a dog yet, so she is now the podcast wow. dog. Yeah, so yeah. Moose is visiting. Just upgraded. Moose, you got promoted. Yeah, so she is in. Um, mm. She's in the. She's in the studio today, having some good sniffs. Uh, so, if you're lucky, you'll be able to hear her. If you hear her uh, collar jingle jangle, it's good luck. Hmm. Next on the list. <laughs> I've not agreed to this. <laughs> Next on the list is our special episodes. Um, on Patreon, every month we have three special episodes. The first is a query show. The second is a first page critique. Then the third one is kind of floating. This month we're doing a Q&A, a very like specific, you know, about querying, about genres, about writing, about craft, anything that you would love to ask an agent send them to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to listen to that, head on over to Patreon and look up Print Run or find us on Twitter and follow the links. Um, and then you'll be able to get like what are literally days of episodes now. If you're Special in, episodes. I think we said this once online, but it's probably good to say here too. If you're a listener to our show, but not a patron yet, and you happen to be a um, aspiring writer who's maybe thinking about you know getting their book out into the world um, in some way this coming year. Um, Laura just said it like you could pay three bucks and get honestly hours and hours and hours and hours of query, of query advice and other stuff if you pay a little more. Like we've got it's a pretty robust catalog by now, and I would find it highly surprising if there wasn't something in there that pertained to the way you're pitching your project. So just something to think about um, as you go about your writing goals and publishing goals this coming year. Wonderful. So let's get to the first thing, Eric. This is something that came to us through Publisher's Lunch, my mm -hmm. most favorite of lunchtime emails. Mm -hmm. um, this is this is a this is an email, a, a trade email put out by Publishers Weekly. Um, Publishers Marketplace, I'm sorry. They're related, but yeah. Publishers Marketplace, Marketplace. specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it has been reported in a press release that in the UK, former Ebury executive Jake Lingwold is joining Octopus, which is another publisher, on February 4th. Um, he will be leading a new nonfiction imprint for which, quote, each book will aim to have a first-person experience at its heart. Terms like literary and commercial feel inadequate now. Instead, we want to read well-written books that are authentic, honest, informative, and entertaining. To agents and authors, my message to you is, whatever the genre, if it's in the first person, I would really love to see it. 
In the meantime, I promise to come up with a decent imprint name before the 4th of February. Oh, boy. Um, so, you know, there's obviously a million different things you could be interested in or take issue with. In sure. This. And I, that sounds more hostile than I mean it. But, I mean, you could – there's lots of things this could lead to in terms of discussion, particularly looking at it, you know, like terms like literary and commercial feel inadequate. Now, I disagree with that. But that is – not what we want to discuss right now. I want to discuss, and I think you do too, this idea of organizing an imprint and specifically a publishing strategy, not around... By point of view. By point of view. By yeah. Not by a category, not by a readership that you've perceived. Or I guess maybe, no, it's, it's even... It is by a readership you perceive, but you're perceiving it to be one organized around point of view as opposed to these other things. And so my first... Um, I guess my first question to you, Laura, is why do you think this is happening? Like, why do like this? I, maybe the way to do it is to assess the claim. So let me let me read it to you again from here. <clears throat> Terms like literary and commercial feel inadequate now. Instead, we want to read well-written books that are authentic, honest, informative, and entertaining. And that is with regard to why the first person is the thing. Right. Um, what do you make of that? Well, so one thing that I bat up against a lot as somebody who works in children's literature and adult literature mm -hmm. is that there is kind of this shorthand with adult literature that first person as a narrative selection mm -hmm. is a terrible idea, right? That it's juvenile, that it is not grown up. Um, a lot of first per like a lot of YA is in first person right mm -hmm. because it you know makes sense you get a little bit closer to your reader and it feels a little bit younger it feels a little bit quicker a little bit more immediate okay, so that's a that's actually a critical idea and a really good point that you just made because I, I think and I think that's key to the entire discussion we're going to be having so when you say that it makes sense that YA is in the first person can you say more about that sure and to be fair like not all YA needs to be in the of course, first person you, why do you think but, it makes so much sense that it is so structurally um, YA at its core is about a character finding a place in their community okay right um so a lot of that has to do with coming of age a lot of that has to do with changing relationships a lot of that has to do with all of the various parts of growing up okay um and that those those moments those just because the book itself is overly personal and based on a personal journey um it's it's easy to put a book in first person because with third, you're showing me what's in a character's head, but you're passing it through a narrator first. Mm -hmm. Whereas in first person, you're just seeing it. And so for like a teen reader who's reading this, it feels more immediate. Mm -hmm. You can maybe you could say that or I guess you want I'll just say I would say that maybe the reason it makes sense as a strategic narrative choice is because it allows you to see yourself in the story more like you know you sort of in, you can inhabit it in a way sure. that is i mean with third person it's very easy to see that this is a separate person from you right you're when moving you're reading, through space a little bit when more when you're reading when you're in that person's head and you're seeing the world through their eyes you start to inhabit the character a little bit you have to yeah. you know like when you read a first person narrative you become become is a really strong word that probably <laughs> isn't what i mean but you get what i'm saying like yeah. 
you have to inhabit the character a little bit. You have to you're asked to relate a little bit more. Right. Right. It's very it's very personable. You feel yourself moving through space, whereas in third person, you're getting narration of a character who exists separately from the voice that you're reading that's moving through space. So it is it is that kind of immediacy. Not that's not to say like I I disagree with the implication from Lingwood here that books that are not in the first person are not authentic, honest, informative or entertaining. Sure. And I don't think that that's what he meant. It's not. But the but the idea is is that first person is more authentic and so i think that's why in because a lot it's of unfiltered right right so because it's, it's unfiltered it's straight and so from the source. Yeah. and so i think that that because it's kind of a shorthand for being authentic and being real i think that's also a reason why adult people in adult literature hate the first person because, because it's yeah, the so idea that, that the that if you put it in first person it's like it's cheating it feels like and so this is that's a, a really interesting point and I'm not totally sure if I agree with it. I do agree that it is that first person is something that is far less common in adult fiction, and it's far less of a stylistic choice in first person for various reasons that have to do with what we conceive of as things being literary, right? Um, but yeah, I guess the the bit about the authentic, mm-hmm. I think that that is a really operative term for me as I look at this. I mean, I guess the truest way to put it is this is an interesting choice to arrange an imprint or a publishing list like this. Um, Because there is, I think, a movement in publishing right now that at least, and this, again, is anecdotal, but from what I can see in Mm -hmm. the contemporary fiction I've been reading lately to the conversations I've been having with editors about, um, you know, fiction, like one thing that keeps coming up a lot is, and this is something that I've sort of had to relearn, I think, in a lot of ways, is I don't feel like I read for the same things that other people read for. Mm. Or like I think that there's this thing that happens where people seem to want to read books now because they really want to they really want to relate to the main character or they really want to um, empathize with the main character or sure. they really want to be able to place themselves in the story somehow or root for it or it's all very, I, I think you could almost group it, and this is maybe is going to sound dismissive. I don't mean it that way, but it's it's very book clubby. Mm, you know what I'm mm-hmm. talking about? Like it's the sort it generates the sort of ideas and discussions that would come up. You know, the what would you do in this situation? Like, right, like that sort of thing that you might talk about with someone else who's read the book. It's very much about connecting with the protagonist, right? And that is never, um, that's never been something that I've. I mean, I like it when it happens, I guess, but it's not something I seek out sure. in my reading experience. And I'll just say, like, pitching editors over the last couple of years on a lot of um, litfic that I've felt pretty strongly about, you know, I've gotten feedback that is basically, um, it basically boils down to, we think this book is beautifully written. We think this book is, um, you know, we think the author has the credentials and the star power that we're, you know, that we're looking for. We think that their next book very well might be for us, but we're just not sure how we're going to, the phrase they always use, and I think it's worth almost unpacking because I think it, it really ties directly to this is we're not sure how we would break this one out Mm. with readers. And it implies this idea of connection with readership, right? Like the idea that there, and it always, and that point is always tied to protagonist and characters, right? Like the, the books I'm thinking of in my head are ones that don't necessarily have the most, like likable figures at the center of them, right? 
and and so it just I think that there's a premium that's being placed right now on being able to see yourself in a story or being able to kind of empathize very like easily and I, easily is the wrong word but like very there's this route toward this connection for empathy you know in these books and in the fiction reading experience is something that I do th- I do see as a trend that is hap- that's happening and I think that I'm not sure I would want to organize a imprint around it because it feels a little bit reactionary to pick one sort of stylistic trend and say this is now what my publisher is defined by like that seems very <laughs> strange to me but um, so let's let, I don't know let's it just feels yeah for a moment about so those organizing characteristics yeah. um traditionally those organizing characteristics are like literary and commercial and Lingwood says here that those terms are inadequate now sure and we often talk about literary and commercial in terms of a spectrum mm-hmm. right? right you know the yeah. literary are the the chewy kind of not necessarily not necessarily going to be read and enjoyed by millions of people um, on the other side to the commercial you know the the easy reads the ones that you know somebody of a lot of different education levels will be able to read and enjoy which just have been have been produced primarily with um, you know, pacing and entertainment sure. in mind as opposed to some sort of, you know, artistic piece. And sure. obviously these things can be can coexist. Like you say, it's a spectrum. These are not to put we've done a whole episodes on this. Go find them. I promise we talk about it in more <laughs> But like they're not um mutually exclusive categories. But, but that's you, kind of the idea. Yeah. Do you think though that that by Forcing and, and forcing is again feels like a stronger term than what I'm trying to mean here. But do you think forcing an imprint to be about one stylistic point of view? Mm-hmm. Do you think, Eric, that it is going to lean one way more towards literary or commercial? You know, like let's say five years in. Uh huh. Do what's you the think? List look like? What's the list look That's like? That's a fascinating question. Because um, I have an idea of what the list looks like, and I want to know if it's the same as yours. I guess that, that's a really good question. I haven't even thought about it, but let's see. I mean, I guess um, – well, one one operative thing we should remember here is he says new nonfiction imprint. You know? So, yeah. like, this is – I mean, theoretically, you're dealing with, I guess, memoir, right? Like, these are, you know, life – you know, these are story. I mean, it's sure. the same – I don't actually – you know, upon – I'm not sure it actually changes the conversation that much, like – you're dealing with because there's literary memoirs and there's commercial memoirs. You know, it's the same. Right. And it could map, be, you know, self self-help yeah. with a first person point yeah, of view or, you know, there's lots of options. My guess is that because of and I'm going to say this because of publishing reasons, not because of what exists. I bet that this leans that this leans commercial. And I think that I, I believe that because um, if agents are pitching, mm-hmm. if you're someone who has a book. And the first thing you think about it is I want to find someone who wants to read a first person narrative. Then that to me is a very it's a commercial consideration more yeah. than thinking like if you're really trying to place a literary book, the narrative perspective, I think, is something you think of as a secondary. Th- you know what I mean? Like you're thinking about themes, you're thinking about, you know, stylistic things that might match an editor. But like this feels like ready made for someone who is thinking about their book purely in like classification terms, which right. feels more commercial to me. 
Um, so I guess that's my my knee jerk reaction on air is that I think that this list will lean more commercial. Well, what do you think? I think that it's going to lean more commercial as well, okay. and specifically because of my experience in YA, uh-huh. which is that the quieter, more complicated books very often, I mean, they can definitely be first person, but I think that if you take a spectrum of YA first person, I would say the bulk of them are more commercial because they are kind of that has that immediate pacing, yeah. you know, early, easy, easier connection um, versus the the harder, slower, more subtle projects yeah. are, I think the, the narrative choice to be able to reflect on them thematically means that it's easier to put them into third. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it's sort of, you know, it raises the question of, I mean, we, we've sort of batted around it already, but like, why do this, you know, as, oppo- as mm-hmm. opposed to like, what do you make of it, which is kind of what we started with, but like, why this choice? Because it does raise some interesting, like, and this isn't, you know, we've got a very specific direction we're going to take this particular episode, but it does raise the question of, do you think that you can make one cohesive, like, you know, you go to a launch meeting as a publisher mm-hmm. and you've got a list and some of it is YA and some of it is adult and some of maybe some of it's a children's book and some of it. But it's all first person, so it all fits theoretically your framework. Like, do you see that working? Because, I, I mean, you can organize however you want, but that you haven't changed how booksellers organize. You haven't changed how, like, it just feels, there's something strange to me a little bit about, like, showing up with your list being a bunch of different stuff that is, I, you know what I mean? Well, like, what you're, you've done is you've created a brand that's instantly recognizable. Like, that's a hard thing is that it's, you know, it's hard to break out debut books but it's harder to break out a debut imprint yeah you know because it doesn't have the sales records yeah and another thing is you know like i i don't necessarily think that an imprint that has a lot of different types of books on it that don't necessarily connect other than the fact of having you know being first person is any different than like fsg you know what i mean like yeah no like they're big big imprints yeah big imprints you know the simon and schuster imprint the penguin imprint you know the the big name imprints they just like throw a bunch of shit into there well they do i mean of course these places all do you know different age groups and different categories of books under the same umbrella but even within that umbrella you know there's like um you know there's you know saint martin's you know there's like teen divisions of saint martin's you know well, there are, like the teens are organized separately you know in there a way. are but and, like the big like holt at yeah, macmillan sure. right or like saint martin's press at macmillan like saint martin's press has divisions underneath it and has sub imprints yeah but like the saint martin's press imprint the main one does a bunch of different stuff. You know, and I pe- feel like it's still okay. Like, yeah, it no, sells like, okay. I mean, sure. I'm just thinking aloud now. Like, um, like pe- I feel like, you know, a thing that comes up a lot is, um, you know, public, you know, publicist expertise, right? Sure. Like, if you know how, you know, like, theoretically, that's a job based on relationships and outlets and, you know, trying to do things within a certain realm that you can then go back to time and time again. And, you know, your purview really widens if all of a sudden you've got to do a bunch of different, you know, like it gets kind of, um, and you're right, it does get done. But I just, you know, 
you're making it's hard to do for a debut. You're making your acquisitions job easier, I think, but you might be making other people's jobs harder. Well, um, we'll see how it what it happens. I mean, it doesn't even have a name yet. So. <laughs> that is a real janky part of this press release. What are you doing, man? I get, I um, promise I'll have a name by yeah, February fourth. Really, really good professional correspondence there. <laughs> um, okay, but so there is a reason um, we've picked this as our starting point, though, and it relates to what we I think kind of the main event of this episode. Um, as it relates to first-person narration and the ability to see oneself in the story in a way that publishing has latched onto as particularly fertile in terms of publicity and sales, right? And that brings us to, I think, probably the biggest example of that, certainly in all of literary fiction. This is over the. This is one of my favorite things. We've been talking about this for so long, you guys, on air and off. Yeah, I mean. So, um, we're talking about cat person. We're talking. I mean, yeah. Just let's just get to it. We're talking about cat person, and we did an episode on cat person. But the reason we're touching back on it now is because uh, Kristen Rupinian, um, her book is now very. It's close to pubbing, right? We're in the publicity cycle for the. Yep. So, just in case you're unfamiliar with the basic logistics of this story, um, you know, late last year, um, this author Kristen Rupinian had a. Uh, short story called cat person published in the new yorker it went nuts right like people everybody read it it was a sensation i've never i've never before or since have ever seen people even talk about a short story on twitter <laughs> let alone talk about it you were honestly this... incredibly alarmed for like two weeks well i still am and i was alarmed <laughs> because i was worried this was going to happen which yeah. we're going to get to but um it's like this story was a phenomenon and of course in publishing's rush to capitalize on basically any amount of enthusiasm that ever exists about anything, the book deal came fast. It was seven figures. Um, it was for a short story collection um, that includes the story Cat Person. Um, we were then, you know, we've got a, you know, we've got a publication date. We've got all this stuff, um, and now the book is titled "You Know You Want This." And I guess the reason we're kind of talking about it now is because the reviews have started to come in, right? The New York Times wrote a scathing review. So the New York, <laughs> and that's what's, in, I mean, and so we're going to talk, and this I, I do want to say as we kind of get into um, some points I want to make about what's kind of happened with this project and this arc of this particular, you know, piece of publishing strategy is that one, the the missteps that I'm about to discuss are not on the author to me. Like I know that you, there's you know some people that could you know look at these things and say, um, well you know maybe it's you know if you've written a book that you know everybody pans maybe that's on. Um, but to me this is a this is a publishing discussion and I right. think that the author has behaved and done all of the exact right things in um, any you know backseat driving we're about to do is entirely in terms of um, the publishing apparatus around her, I guess is what I would say. And I would also say, as we kind of get into this New York Times review, that, as you say, panned the book pretty um, pretty heavily. Like, it really kind of got after it. Um, lots of other outlets have reviewed this book favorably. Um, sure. Kirk- Kirkus liked it. Um, the, you know, The Cut, I think, liked it. Like, I mean, this Cat is... Person is a great short oh, story. That, and that is the, that's the third thing to say, is I, I loved Cat Person as a story. I think it's a great piece of fiction. Um, for a number of reasons, mostly related to the fact, and this is maybe a good place to kind of jump into the real conversation here. Um, Cat Person to me is 
um, this first press, this guy who wrote, who's making this press about you know a fir- first person narration, cat person's the dream scenario. That's the that's the prototype. You know what I mean? Like a a story or a piece of fiction. You know, and obviously he's doing nonfiction, but you, you know that exists in a way that lets everyone who read it who reads it put themselves in it in a certain way that allows them to evoke their own experiences to feel particularly poignant in the mm-hmm. level on the level of subtext in a way that makes it take off on, in a viral way like cat person did on the strength of people talking about their reactions and other people's reactions and how it was basically serving as this you know litmus test for how we view all sorts of other things you know in the in the current moment and um it's it's a fascinating piece of work in a lot of ways mostly because i think it's real genius is that it lets you it lets you kind of insert yourself into the story in a way that like, it lets you or it lets you kind of see your own life you know in this piece in a way that i think lots of short fiction doesn't necessarily want you to you right know? and it very cleverly handles an experience that is incredibly common for white women in sure. today sure. you know dating white men yeah right like it's sure. a very it, it is it's a very like it's a story for white people it's re, it's um, well, it's it's relatable but it's, but it's right? very like that's, relatable that's and that that's the key word that i think has mostly washed out as a means of um you know i mean it, people use it so many different ways it's tough to kind of pin down what that even means but i think it gets to that same idea that this person is talking about with their new first person imprint which is um, they want it's it feels authentic. You yeah. can relate the take to the take was that it was a documentary, that it wasn't actually fiction. It was really not everybody's story. And that was what drove me up a wall originally. Is because <laughs> people wanted to take this piece of fiction and say, No like the fashionable take was no, it's you know, it's real. It's like, no, it's not. It's this is a fiction you know, a first person narrator is still a fictional narrator. It is not you. It is not a re- it's it's a character, you know? Right. And but that line gets so blurred and it leads to this thing that happened, which is um, virality, right? Mm-hmm. Is that how you say it? Virality? I don't even know how you would say it. But virality? The, the state I think of... virality is like being virile. <laughs> yeah. um, that's for the hyena episode last last week. <laughs> um, but the state of having become viral on the internet, right? Which this story accomplished in a way that few others did. And my thing with it is... The publishing strategy around this author and this story and the collection that's within it has become entirely geared around trying to recreate that response right? in a way that I think has kind of predictably become underwhelming. You know, like if you remember the galleys for this book, I don't know if you remember seeing Oh, those. I have it. You do? Yeah. Like yeah. the word, you know, like cat person is bigger than, you know, the name of the book, you know, on there. Like it's... Um, this this is a collection of stories that is being sold on and marketed on the one story that's in it, right? Because it, it remembers um, – it's trying to make you remember how you responded so strongly to that story in a way that's going to get you to not buy the book, right? Which isn't necessarily a bad strategy on its face, but um, – It's a much better strategy than the actual <laughs> cover, which looks <laughs> like cover, it was made yeah. in Microsoft Paint. The cover is – Yeah, the cover's not good. It's just like a really poorly photoshopped artistic vagina. Yeah, no, it's it's just it doesn't, um, and you can easily look it up. But um, the cover is not that good, frankly. It looks like it could use a little bit of work. Um, It's, it. I mean, the book obviously they handed her a ton of money to publish this. It's possible that they it will sell. It's possible that this book will hit those sales quotas. I mean, I think people are going to buy it despite the. 
Um, I guess we're going to find out what a New York Times uh, review is worth these days, aren't we? Um, yeah. Because, every, like I said, a lot of other places really liked it. So but, here's the thing about that review, though, Eric. Yeah. It, like, the, the first half of the review um, mm-hmm. talks about how sort of ridiculous the 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 brouhaha around the story happened when the story first came out and then very very little is about the rest of the stories and they're just kind of like comparing the fact that they're more violent that they're more um that they're more extreme than this particular than this particular story and, and the implication there is that the author, not just the publisher, was trying to recreate the success of Cat Person. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, you can't expect a brand new MFAer who got lucky with this short story in The New Yorker that then went viral. Who wrote a very to, good, like, I mean, so you say an, be lucky. She wrote a very good story that deserved to be published and talked about. Right. She yeah. yeah, she did. But she, like, you can't expect that author to then have a book deal come out of that. And... Like, you, you can't expect that fully to be reactionary. The rest of these stories aren't reactionary. Like, they have to have been part of a larger work. And I think that the balance of this New York Times article is a little bit unfair because I think it takes Cat Person as the main goal and then judges the rest of these as falling short. Okay, so I I guess I, I see what you're saying there. My take on it is a little bit different. Okay, what's your take on it? Which is that... I, I'm thinking about the speed of that deal that came yeah. down. Remember, like this person wrote, obviously all these stories, right? Like your point is that Cat Person didn't wasn't the first thing she wrote, and then they got the deal, and now all these other stories got written in light of that. That isn't what happened, right? And I agree that that isn't what happened. But what I do think might have happened is that this person wrote a bunch of short stories. One of them, or at least one of them, one we know for certain was a real winner mm-hmm. they submitted it got a deal around it maybe it's possible that maybe that was the one that was worth showing you know but because of the speed of the deal and the way probably that publishing conversation must have gone it was probably a situation in which they said what have you got right now and what she had was a collection of stories one of which was really really good and the others were good m- maybe they're good you know but they were what they were you know what i mean and so we get into a situation where yeah um, I, I agree that it's unfair to say that these other stories were written as a wee means of recreating the, vir- the virality of the first because they weren't. But I don't necessarily think it's unfair to say that the really, you know, the piece of work that's worth showing up for here is Cat Person and we're not so sure about the other ones. Well, I well, I, I agree with you. And I don't think that our two thoughts no, can't not. coexist yeah. together, right? Yeah. Um, but I, I do feel like this book is rushed. Yeah. And yeah, and yeah. how and what that ends up being will depend. Like, because because we know that this person can write. Yeah. No, right? no, like, no question. That's, that's a thing. So it's more, a, a, I think, a bad review from The New York Times is in a lot of ways, even though it's not painted as such, like what it truly is, if you read between the lines as we are doing right now, is that it is a criticism of the the whole thing like the way in which this was published kind of the the pressure it put on this particular 
author in this particular book. And to be clear, I'm not saying that she should not have taken this deal take the because money. there is take no money in publishing money. and you should take the money when you says, can. <laughs> someone says, here's a big old check for your short story collection. You take the money. You always um, take the money. So like good for good for Rupinian, quite honestly. No, she, uh, she did exactly what she should do. This is a dream scenario for her. And I, she, I believe I 100% believe that, you know, this was a, it should be reminded that it was a two-book deal, that deal. Yeah, like it this, is. Like, the other book might be the great American novel, you and know what I mean? she might have like, extra time to do <laughs> it, and, yeah, and I, I, I wasn't fully intending to read yeah. p- this book before we recorded this episode. Unfortunately, I ran out of time, um, but I, I think, I think there's... This idea that's talked about in this New York Times article about how the cruelty in this series of short stories um, is kind of like a dull and needy way to... Like in a in a very and dull and needy is their words. Is their words. The New York Times says, "quote This is a dull and needy book." Right, and they're they're saying that the artists engage with cruelty and see that engagement as a form of truthfulness. So do you think so that I think is a really interesting question because it sounds like the insinuation here is that Cat Person is a story that hits a really raw nerve, right? Yeah. Like it makes you feel a it's incredibly way. violent. And it's, it's just the violence is off the page for the most yeah. part. Yeah. And so there's almost like this sense that maybe the author was like trying to recreate that by being a little bit more sensational each time. Like Again, trying to publish within the shadow of that first story's right. sensationalism, you know, like it. And so you're trying, you know, you, when it's time for story number two, you're trying to recreate the feeling everyone had. And so you're trying to dictate reader response in a way that no one writing anything could ever be asked to, you know. But like the publishing strategy has now entirely become this is you remember how you felt reading Cap. Not Cap person is really good. And I think there's a difference because Cat Person is really good, but I think there's a difference in those two approaches. There's one to say these stories are really good, and it's another thing to say, remember how much we all talked about mm-hmm. this first thing. And I want to read this particular um, this particular bit that we've sort of touched on already, but it kind of gets at that idea from the review here. And so here we go. <clears throat> Many heralded the story when it first appeared, not as a piece of fiction, but as a dispatch from the murky zones of sex and dating. Cat Person is basically a documentary, is a take I remember from the time. Others sniffed, saying relatability shouldn't be embraced as an artistic criterion. Some men felt personally attacked by the description of the male character, only to carry on a bit like him online. Not least a National Review columnist who wrote an angry and wounded open letter to Margot, chiding her for her behavior. It was the usual internet life cycle, in other words. Everyone used the story to scold everyone else for liking it or not liking it enough or liking it for the wrong reasons. A few people made cat memes. Everyone moved on. (laughs) And I think that there's something really, I think, prescient in that, you know, in that kind of description of what happened because it does get at this idea that we aren't talking about the story. Right. We're we're using, like she says it here, we're using it to scold each other. We're using it to, like, it's the echo that they're trying to recreate, right? Like, the strategy is not here's some more cat person it's here's some more feel here's some more things that are going to make you have the same conversations you had that first time through and i think that that's very strange that and it's not doing the author any favors i don't think like it's not saying this is the you know this is a writer who is a really great you know stylist and a short fiction artist and all these things it's saying this writer produces things that are going to get you fired up 
and I and I think that there's something different there, and I think I don't know that I necessarily like that very much. Yeah, I, I, I think that there is this idea in the discourse around this particular story and this particular story collection that it is somehow in a way obscene or inappropriate for this author to continue to engage with violence and cruelty in the way yeah. that made everybody so fired up which about is the story toward her. which is unfair towards her but i think i think um i think that that's okay like i think that having a story collection that makes you you know that touches on all of these horrible things the 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 least of which is cat person um, feel like quite honestly feels like something that white men in the late nineties would have been celebrated for, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, like yeah. a lot, a lot of that, a lot of that. Um, I, I'm wondering how much of this is panned because of the author's gender. I'm wondering how much of this is, is creating a lot of anger and talk because it is centering women in in mm-hmm. these kinds of subjects that are normally centered centering men. You know, like if you read a a um, Brett Easton Ellis or like a right. Chuck Palahniuk book, right. like those are very similar. It I is, think. I think that that's a it's a great point to say that. Um, She's being chided for writing, you know, violent stories in a way that a male writer simply would not. Right. I think, I think that's 100 percent true. And I, I do also think that that male reaction to it, which is part of that part and parcel with that quote I just read. Right. Like, the you know, men acting heard about this story online was a key feature of the response. To, mm-hmm. Do you remember that Twitter account? What was it? It was called. I think that the account was the premise was men react to cat person. Oh, oh gosh, that? that was great. And like it was just like a feed that retweeted like men having breakdowns <laughs> about this. St- it was very <laughs> funny, um, but like that's kind of where we ended up with it. And, right. And I guess so. Just to circle back a little bit, thinking about that response, you know, I've heard more than once from editors, you know, as as fiction gets pitched. And I'm sure you have too. Every every agent has in certain in certain projects, like. I'm not sure how we would break this out with readers. Mm. This, to me, this is the end product of that. This is breaking it out with readers, right? Like right. This is this is the result of a publishing model that places that first and foremost. And I find that to be, I mean, I guess I don't really have a fully formed thought on it. I find it interesting. I find it to be very different than the way I've kind of grown up and kind of come to love books and reading. Like, I don't... I don't know. Like, there's something strange. It feels like a sea change almost. Well, this is how a book breaks out to readers. And it's having already been broken out because of somebody else did all of the work and kind of made this person a household name before the publishing deal happened. Actually, that's that is a that's a really good point. Because it's like, what value has the publisher added since she did this herself? I mean, gave yeah. her a million dollars. <laughs> that's what's but value. I, just, I guess I mean in that. Yes. <laughs> but. <laughs> I, I guess I mean, like, in terms of the prospects of her, um, lo- maybe I just mean it narrowly in terms of her prospect of her literary reputation. What oh. she has, she has earned herself. And she right. did that through her own writing and her own submitting to The New Yorker, right? I don't know what, and I guess we'll see what happens with the book. And obviously, like I said, 
lots of other reviews. You know, Kirkus, you know, gave this a star review. Kirkus doesn't like anything. Yeah, they, you know, people are, people like this book. Lots of people like this book. I'm sure um, we're just kind of going off of, you know, the outlet, you know, like the big one. And so I don't know. It's, it's a weird conversation. But to me, it does signal, I think that if every publisher, this is the dream scenario in current publishing logic right mm-hmm. now. And I will say that I don't like it. And I wish, you know what I mean? You don't, do you see what I'm kind of saying? It's yeah, like, I do. Every publisher wishes that this was what they were working with. And I feel like they have gotten that chance and they have worked with it in a way that has done the author and the project no favors. Yeah. And that, that expectation, I think, is going to come around and bite most people in the butt because then all we're going to get is like books that are Instagram stories with typos. I don't want a literary culture that is trying to write toward virality on the internet. Yeah. I think that that is, I think we should be throwing our bodies in front of that, I will say. Mm. Like, that's... Um, I would be okay with us going viral, though. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, but but you know what I mean? Like, if the criterion for what should be published and what should be given a huge advance at this point is, look how much fervor you can generate online, I think that, I think that that's a problem. Like, I think that if you care about... And again, this has nothing to do with, you know, I keep saying it because I know we're being critical, but this has nothing to do with the author who <laughs> did nothing but write a good story and got and paid for it. And take the money. Which yeah. is what she should have done. And I really hope that, I hope that this book is, I'll probably read this book. And, you know, like, I just hope that it goes really well for her. But some of these publishing decisions raise my eyebrows a little bit. And I just, I don't want to write toward virality. I don't want to agent toward virality. I don't want to publish toward virality. I want to publish towards something we agree is artistically good and so when i see you know to lead off like a quote that actually what we're looking for is a particular type of narrative structure what we're looking for is a premium on stories that the reader can insert themselves into i i don't know i guess i feel a certain way about it it's i find it to be interesting we'll see what happens um you know but i guess that that's kind of where i'm at let's do a taloon it may concern sure so eric taloon it may concern. Mm, yes. I've been having trouble with the antagonist <laughs> in my novel. I have her backstory and motivations, but it's still been a struggle to flesh her out. Then I was listening to a podcast about female criminals and they dive deep into their psychology. And this one criminal had narcissistic and borderline personality disorders. As they were talking about the symptoms and this woman's behavior, I realized it fit my antagonist perfectly and made so much sense and pieces which were flying around in my head were coming together. But now I'm worried about portraying mental health. A majority of people who have disorders such as these don't end up being murderers or criminals. Even with doing research and making sure I have all the facts right, I don't want to villainize mental health issues. Yet, it could be just the thing that would work for this character. Is there a way to include these types of disorders in an antagonistic character without demonizing it? Have you seen examples of it being done well? Thanks so much. Confused, but I'm trying in Chicago. Interesting question. Yeah. Um, the dog is snoring. The right? dog right is right snoring. Right as we start the serious conversation <laughs> about mental health and literature, I'm looking down at this. The dog this has animal. no interest. She is sleeping. <laughs> um, but... I think that the first thing you you know to do here is to really tread carefully because I think that there is a real risk. Like when you start saying, I, maybe to me my knee jerk response is there's a problem in the idea of like causation here as it would exist on the page. In that like, if you give, 
like if you give the you know your antagonist a you know a, you know a mental disability or something and say this is the reason they are the way that they are this is why they are a villain i think i think that that feels a little bit problematic to me and i think that that is something that should probably be avoided because not only are people more complicated than that but your character should be more complicated than that you know right. but uh, i don't know i guess that's my that's my first <laughs> thought here what do you think um, well, as somebody with mental illness, uh-huh. um, I totally understand where this author is coming from. Yeah. But I think at the end of the day, um, there, it's important that your characters make sense. Mm-hmm. And there are ways that human brains work to make, you know, the ways that people process information, ways that people see the world, ways that people behave. Um, at the end of the day, you know, we're all elect, you know like electrons firing and hormones and, and you know, all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's important that you be true to your character. Like if this is who this person is, like if you're trying to make them authentic, yeah, then make sure that in your head as you're drafting it, you have these traits in there because, um, that's the only way that there's going to have any little bit of like understanding or sympathy coming from the reader. Mm-hmm. One thing that I want you to not do, gentle reader in Chicago, or gentle listener in Chicago, there we go, um, is to come right out in your manuscript and be like, this character is a criminal and she has borderline personality disorder. And those are the two things that we are linking together for the rest of the story. Exactly. And that's how you see the, like, there's a difference so, in how yeah. you draft it yeah. to make it make sense for a human reader with a human character and really like putting this forward as in this character is bad because of this. Well, it's like, I mean, so yeah, I mean, so it sounds like we're kind of in agreement on sort of one, like, what you don't want is the flashing neon sign that says the reason this character is the villain is because of this one trait about you want to make yeah you want to write a human you want to write a person with a million different factors in their life with um all these sorts of different things that have made them who they are and made them complex and tough to classify in various ways like you know be careful of reducing the tropes you know be careful the same way you would like like you would never um like, you know, I mean, it sounds very obvious to even say, but like you would never make someone a villain because of, you know, their race or their gender or any, you know, or anything else. And it's like, it's the same because we know that that doesn't make sense, you know, like that, that's just not right. how, <laughs> that's not how the world works on how people are. And so it's like, you, you want to be careful, you want to be careful here too. And so it's, it's just a matter of like writing a human and not a walking right. trait. And you know? giving it context like the thing is is like if you're worried about this character being mentally ill like look at your other characters like at your hero like does your hero have a mental illness as well you know like you can you can balance that out and i feel like it is inauthentic to show to to not show or to shy away from showing the spectrum because at the end of the day like somebody is a villain because and I, like I don't know you you keep calling this person your antagonist but I'm kind of picturing them as like an like an a evil villain in a superhero movie like the mm-hmm. like in the Incredibles yeah um but like a person is a villain because of their choices and their 
brain chemistry and their pre- previous experiences and the you know their their community and their environment like those all shape why they make the choices that they do but it's about the choices and if you focus on the choices i think you're going to be okay yeah i think that's a good way to end it wonderful all right well thank you so much for this for joining us on this our 91st episode of print run um make sure to stay tuned on patreon for our three special episodes coming to you later this month and we will see you for a regular episode next week bye Bye.